Welcome back to the third year of the Netflix podcast, Present Company. I'm your host, Krista Smith. This season, we have something really special for you. I'll be exploring a universal human emotion with our guests. Fear, a word that has gathered new meaning for many of us over the past year. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm sitting down with Adam McKay to talk about his new film, Don't Look Up. Adam has proved over the years to be one of the most brilliant comedic minds of our generation, and one of my favorites, bringing us films like Anchorman, Step Brothers, The Big Short, and Vice. There are so many reasons to be excited about Don't Look Up. For one, the cast. It stars Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep, Jonah Hill, Rob Morgan, Kate Blanchett, Timothy Chalamet, Tyler Perry... Oh, and Ariana Grande, just to name a few. But what takes this film to another level is Adam's ability to play with comedy and satire without trivializing the world issues the film deals with. The writing, acting, and directing on this project are truly a feat, and I can't wait to share more details with you now. So here is Adam McKay. Everybody tuning in, you are in for a treat because I have Adam McKay, one of the most brilliant minds ever, I would say, of any generation. I just think you are exceptional on every level. And you have a new movie, Don't Look Up, which you also wrote and directed. But I just want to remind everybody of a few of the things that you've done that are Basically, I have two teenage boys, so you're legend in my house, even though these movies came out before they were born. Okay? okay. <laughs> Anchorman, obviously you created Funny or Die, Step Brothers, Anchorman 2, The Big Short, Get Hard, and obviously Succession and Vice, one of my favorite films, also starring two of my favorite actors, Amy Adams and Christian Bale. So... I'm so excited to talk to you, Adam. It is my pleasure to be here, Krista. Thanks for having me. And you certainly deliver with Don't Look Up. And I just need to talk to you about this film, and I've seen it twice, has still just boggled my mind about how you're able to weave all the crises that we are experiencing as a society and globally into a disaster comedy. And it is funny. I mean, I was laughing. I can't believe how spot on it is. You're you're almost embarrassed to laugh at how accurate you are, but it really is funny and it's entertaining. It's everything. And the fact that you wrote this film before the pandemic is staggering to me. Can Can you just tell me how this idea came to be and what was the genesis? And I know you wrote it with uh, David Sirota as well, but just Tell us how this idea came into your head and then how did you flesh it all out? Yeah, it was it was really like what 12, 13, 14 years ago where I think probably for all of us, we were, you know, I think we had a moment with the financial crisis, the W. Bush Cheney years before that leading into the financial crisis where it was like, oh, this isn't just cyclical stuff. Like, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I play very bad basketball uh, uh, a lot. And I've had that moment where like my knee twinges and there was kind of that moment in the late 2000s where things weren't going great, but I, I think a lot of us could feel the knee kind of twinge, like, uh-oh, something structural is going on here. And then the financial collapse hit 
and and then a bunch of other crazy things started happening. But in the midst of all of that, uh, I started really uh, becoming aware of the climate crisis and started talking to some of these scientists and became friends with David Wallace Wells. And everything I was hearing was so startling to me, even after Al Gore's famous film, it was so much more jarring and so much more epic than I ever imagined. And so I started to realize like, oh, you've got to do a movie about this, but how in God's name do you address something this gigantic? I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, being alive when Krakatoa erupted and you're like, hey, something's going on with that volcano, that mountain. It's awfully smoky. Let me write a little play about that. Like, what do you, how do you possibly get close to something that gigantic? So I, I did what I always do, which is sometimes you just try and outwork something. So I wrote like five or six premises for movies, little two page treatments. And one was a big epic, you know, drama. And another was sort of a, a M. Night Twilight Zone kind of style thriller with a twist. And another was a, a small character piece. Maybe by going micro, you can go macro. And they were all pretty cool. And I, I may do something with them in one form or another. But it wasn't until I was talking to my friend, David Sirota. This is probably about three years ago. And I think he had tweeted something and I brought it up to him. And it was very, very uh, funny, but kind of simple joke about, oh, the comet is headed towards Earth and no one seems to care. And... It just something about that idea was a big enough entryway, simple enough, yet something like it's a reference that we all immediately get. We've all seen all those disaster movies. We've all seen Jaws. We've all seen Towering Inferno. There are thousands and thousands of movies. Even when you get into the Marvel universe, every one of those movies is going to end with the world ending. And. I, I just said to David, I said, I think that's the idea. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, let me write up an outline. And I don't think he believed me. And I came back with an outline and I was like, I think this is it because it can be funny. And I, I think it's important to be able to laugh while we feel all the craziness going on now. And that was kind of it. it. It came from the, the most unlikely of sources, which was a David Sirota tweet. tweet. It came from Twitter, the giant comet coming to end the world. And how long did it take you to, once you get that idea, and like you, you said, you wrote two pages, you had your treatment together. How long did it take for you and David to actually write it and have a script that you could send out? Well, in this case, you know, David has a story by credit. So I did the majority of the initial writing. So I outlined it. And, you know, outlines are kind of the hardest part of writing a script. It's sort of the the heavy metal phase of, of putting something together. It's where everything you're writing is a story turn. So, you know, that took me, I would say on and off, like two, three months of outlining. And then, of course, halfway through outlining it, my computer program just deleted all of it. So I had a day and a half where I almost cried. I was right on the edge of I was like asking people, do you think I should cry? I, I'm not sure how to handle this. 
I just can't believe that that happens to someone like you. Usually that only happens to people like me, who's like uh, terrible with uh, electronics. And I'm going to openly slam Microsoft Word because they, they hit me with some sort of, you've got to subscribe to this. I just went, okay, whatever. I just want to write my outline. And then later I learned that this is happening to some people that use Microsoft. And then all my friends, my tech savvy friends were like, duh, use Google Docs. It automatically refreshes. So I made the switch. Fortunately, I remembered it. And I wrote like the first 30 pages of the script. And then I had to go off and do the pilot for this Lakers uh, series that we're doing for HBO about the Showtime Lakers, which combines pretty much all my passions. It's about class, culture, race, and basketball. So, and the whole time I was making that, all the information that kept coming out about the climate was just getting worse and worse. And they were active, like the nation of Australia was on fire. And I really had this moment where I'm like, oh my God, like, is the climate crisis right now? I mean, we know the models were wrong, but, you know, I finished it. I went to, we have a lake house in Ireland, which is the greatest place to write on planet Earth. And I went there for like three weeks and I just cranked this script out faster than I think I've ever written. And my producer, Kevin Messick, was like, I think you can send this out. I'm like, Kevin, what are you talking about? I just wrote it in basically a month. And he's like, no, it reads pretty well. And that was it. We were on the horse and we got Jen Lawrence in. We got Rob Morgan. We got Meryl Streep. We were scouting in Boston and boom, COVID hit. Well, it is a murderer's row of actors. I have to say it is staggering the talent that you have like a towering inferno when you would have every actor right from eight to 80 that people instantly recognize all experiencing this disaster together, which is what I think is so brilliant other than the the dialogue and the conceit of this film is seeing all these people that we know experiencing it. So Jennifer, you got her on board. And then obviously Leo, who I can't, you know, he's a huge environmentalist. What were those conversations like when you were talking to Talon about about the script and, and the movie? If you can tell us any. Some of them were pretty easy. Like with Jen, I told her, I go, I wrote this for you. I've been dying to work with her forever. And she just read it and was like, yes, I'm in. I love it. Uh, Rob Morgan, I just worked with on the HBO show. And the whole time I was working with him, I knew who he was, but I was still like, oh, my God, like, where have people been hiding this guy? Like, I just loved Rob so much. And so they were in kind of right away. And then. And, you know, you write a a character like President Orlean, you have to go to Meryl Streep. And I just (laughs) expected it to be a no because it's Meryl Streep. And and then she said yes. And then I then I knew it was getting a little crazy. Um, But Leo was a longer process. He and I met like three, four times here at my house and we discussed the tone. And he is really rigorous when it comes to a script, when it comes to character. He's really smart, really thorough. And he had a lot of really challenging questions for me, which I welcomed. And so we really developed that character together. And there were a lot of changes that came from my discussions with him. 
Um, and and it was really wonderful. I after all those discussions, I still wasn't sure if he was going to do it because he had a Martin Scorsese movie lined up. And I openly told him, I go, Leo, if it was me, I, I would leave this movie to go do a Martin Scorsese <laughs> movie. So I will hold nothing against you if that's what ends up happening. And then finally, uh, he was like, I'm in. And it was it was really thrilling. And Jonah Hill uh, is someone I've known for years. He was really critical to this movie. You needed someone who was who could improvise and was funny, but yet a grounded enough actor to play both sides. Tyler Perry, I kind of call my secret weapon because I just keep getting the gift of these brilliant performances from him, like him as Colin Powell in Vice and then in this movie. And uh, and I, I'm waiting for the day where everyone figures out that he should be in dramas and mm-hmm. challenging movies, you know, nonstop. But uh, as it is now, like he and I have this great relationship and I called him and he's like, I'm there. And it's uh, he's just fantastic in this movie. And he's another one who can play grounded, but he's funny, he can improvise. And then at that point, I started realizing that this cast was playing into the theme of the movie, which the theme of the movie is this giant media, cultural, social media, internet machine that we've built that is really one giant glorified sales pitch uh, to make you feel good, to make me feel good, to make all of us feel good. And that in a way, the movie... You know, the movie was written to do that. The first three quarters of the movie are supposed to be uh, a comment on just our culture, how it the last thing it wants to do is give you bad news. And so the idea that we were getting some of the great actors of this generation to play these roles ended up falling right in line with the theme of the movie. Um, and then it didn't hurt that they're all wildly talented as well. And that's then uh, the follow through of the movie became Kid Cudi, Ariana Grande, uh, Timothy Chalamet, Himish Patel. And I realized like, oh, this this worked out in kind of a nifty, perfect way that I never could have planned. Yeah, Ariana, she's great. She's great. I mean, she's got that you know, a couple of scenes, but she crushes, crushes them. And obviously then the performance. So COVID hits, right? So you've got all this happening and then COVID hits. I know everyone's dealt with COVID. All filmmakers have had to deal with this. It's been a a global pandemic, but this particular film, and I've resisted talking to directors about COVID, but to me, this one, I have to ask you about it because there are so many scenes here where you had crowds and whether it's crowds at the presidential rallies or crowds at the concerts and so much walking, talking, moving, trains, offices. Like, how did you deal with that in COVID? It was, uh, you know, we've made a podcast about it because when we went into the movie, I said, if we were allowed to have a documentary film crew on the set, I would make, because I'm a big fan. I think we all are of all those like Hearts of Darkness, you know, Man Man from La Mancha and all these great making of Boondock Saints. And I love those movies. And I knew this one was going to be extra treacherous, bizarre, uh, interesting. And so we ended up recording a podcast about it, which will come out, I think, sometime in January called The Last Movie Ever Made. It's really cool. Um, But to answer your question, 
We had a multi-pronged approach. There are about six or seven different strategies. Number one, Netflix, to their credit, spent a lot of money for safety. We had rigorous daily testing, instant testing. We had COVID monitors everywhere. We created the zones. We never had one single positive test result in the red zone, the shooting area. There was no one who was hospitalized or got seriously ill on the movie, which I'm very proud of because safety is so important. And then to buttress that, thank God uh, CG has gotten so good. You can do CG crowds and they really look real. So you see those rallies for President Orlean. You see those giant crowd scenes. Those are 99% uh, you know, false people or people that we filmed mm. separately in clean environments and then put together in VFX. And that's a ton of credit to our VFX supervisors, Raymond and Dion, were just incredible with that. Um, and then for the street scenes, you know, you use the long lenses. You have your extras far away from your, your A-team. The extras are tested as well. And you use that long lens and it crunches the street scene. Then you go and you add extra cars. Later, you add deep extras. And we just got very good at being very crafty uh, in, in about 20, 30 different ways that could keep the set Safe. It, it didn't hurt that I just come off doing the Lakers show where I had to make a bunch of actors look like they were seven feet tall and professional <laughs> basketball players. So our, our crafty filmmaking mind was pretty sharp at that point. Right. So it didn't help the creative process. You've talked a lot about improv, right? So clearly these actors improv on set and that means you've got to not be precious about your words. And you come from a background of, of improv. Is this like how important is that to you in that moment to get to get those actors as their characters participating in improv? Is it like an absolute must for the actor that they be able to improv or or how does it work on an Adam McKay set? You know, everyone's different. So you sort of feel out the actor. There are some actors that like to do the quote improv before you roll film. So they'll ask a lot of questions. They'll throw out a lot of alts. They'll try different takes in our rehearsal, different emotional, uh, you know, wavelengths. And so there'll be actors that do it like that. Then there are some actors that like to just chip away a little bit at it. They'll give different line variations. I'll throw a line out to them and say, hey, maybe try this. And then there are the actors who are like, hold me back. And those are the actors that really love it. You know, that we're always going to get the as written lines, of course. But after those three, four, five, six takes where we get the as written, they're raring to go. Um, so it's a blend and usually what ends up happening that I love is that the spirit of the improv uh, affects the scripted as well, because there's a looseness, there's a realness to the way everyone's behaving. So the scripted starts to elevate as well. And also when you have those kind of intrepid actors who are willing to dive in with the improv, which necessarily means you're going to swing and miss. Uh, it's part of improv. You are going to fail sometimes, but I'm just not going to use those takes. When you see those actors kind of lead the charge, it empowers the other actors as well. So I, I find it really becomes contagious. The one thing I've learned through the years is there are some scenes where you don't need to improvise a lot. I mean, if it's someone just saying, 
you know, hey, come on into the come on into my house. Here's a cup of coffee. You don't need to go crazy. Uh, you can try one or two things. So I've gotten a little smarter through the years with my first couple of films. We improvised on everything and we would shoot over a million feet of film. But I, I'm a little more strategic about it now. But I've always found that actors that are reticent by the end end up loving it and, and really just take to it. The first meeting in the White House, it's just pure brilliant. I just loved it so much. And you're right. It's like, I don't know whether some of that was improv or what ended up in the film, but the looseness and the chemistry and you absolutely felt that it was real and that you were that this was actually happening in the White House. I'm like, yep, that's what would be happening. (laughs) Thank you. That's a perfect example, because that's a scene in the final edit that I'll arbitrarily throw out some percentages, but let's call it 70%, 75% scripted, 25% improv. And I think that scene's a great example of how the improv makes the scripted better, creates an environment, and and a lot of that kind of tense, you know, that tension, that looseness, that sort of dysfunction that you feel in that scene. I don't think you would have gotten it quite to that degree without the improv kind of being mixed in there. The only problem we had with that scene was that by then we had seen that the reality in fact, was so crazy. You know, once again, you have the president of the United States actually floating the idea of ingesting bleach. And, you know, I don't care who someone voted for, if you're right wing or left wing, you have to acknowledge that was that was pretty insane. And so when you have reality getting that extreme, um, we really that the tone of that scene was very difficult to edit because it started much crazier And in some of the test screenings we did, audiences sort of tuned out because it was too crazy. And I almost wanted to step in front of them and say, hey, are you aware of what's actually happening? So that was a constant battle with this movie was to find to to define what reality is, given where the real world is right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought it was very successful in that and very much it was like a, a little bit of post-traumatic stress watching it, but also like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. I'm, I'm, I could be watching a documentary right now. Being from media myself, one of the through lines that I was particularly gravitated towards on a, on a more serious note was the utter collapse of communication. And how you wove that in with Leo's character and Jen's character, the scientists, right? Like they are the truth tellers. They're science. It's math. It's undisputable. And what happens to the what they're trying to communicate while navigating the political media and social organisms that we've set up, for lack of a better word, and how it's just like this landscape that there's no way to handle it in which you could have gotten this message across. We're so broken when all of these things are meeting. It was just fascinating to me about like at the end of the day, it's just the collapse of communication. We've kind of been playing with it in our last couple movies. It's something my editor, Hank Corwin, and I have, we keep experimenting with trying to capture that for lack of a better word, that collective, you know, that gestalt, that that collective feeling we have every day between social media, broadcast TV, texting, and just what is that? Because it's almost become like a character in our life, a very influential character. And once again, you, you see it 
played out every single day. Uh, You know, we know for a fact that the livable atmosphere is collapsing. Yet day in, day out, I I just see a media machine that doesn't want to say it that nakedly. And then what do they do? They cut to commercials for oil companies or gas driven cars and the con and, and, and I'm not blaming any individuals we're, we're you know people there's a lot of great journalists out there working really hard a lot of people even on TV shows doing really good work everyone's doing the best they can I, I would say it's definitely a systemic problem and really it kind of goes back to Michael Lewis's central thesis of a lot of his books which is are the uh, the incentives are screwed up all of the incentives have been twisted and uh, it's funny I just watched broadcast news with my oldest daughter recently she had never seen it and boy man James L Brooks really nailed it with that movie that's the exact moment where broadcast journalism was undone when they folded it into the entertainment division and the very way that we communicate with each other became profitized that you had to not only be able to communicate information but you had to be be able to sell advertising while you're doing it and it's a it's a dangerous situation that we're in and and one that's like screaming for some sort of redress but at the same time you know our very government has been captured by these same forces so you know we know for a fact that facebook is undoing the fabric of democracy yet Mm -hmm. i'm not hearing of any bills being proposed to reform or to regulate these social media giants so it's yeah it's an incredible time it's both horrifying and hilariously funny i mean I see Mark Zuckerberg speak in public and I'm like, if he were a supervillain in a Marvel movie, it would be too over the top. Right. You wouldn't believe it. Jen's character is unbelievable. You know, what happens with her through social media and then the boyfriend, I'm not going to, you know, everyone can watch the movie and, and see for themselves. But these scenes are they're just brilliant and and so spot on. And it's, it's like I said, you're kind of watching and you're horrified because you've participated in all of this willingly. And then you're horrified by your own actions. It's- Poor Jen. I mean, her character, I don't I don't think I'm giving anything away for her character, Kate DiBiaschi, she chooses the hardest road there is, yeah. which is she just straight up tells the truth. And uh, right. oh, my God, does she? Yeah, yeah she gets it. There's no question. <laughs> what do you hope people take away from this movie other than being wildly entertained? Kate Blanchett's character is brilliant. I mean, she's amazing as the newscaster. Like you said, Tyler Perry, everyone shows up in such a in a way worthy of their, you know, of what we expect of them. They all deliver. But overall, what are you hoping that audiences take away from this? Well, first and foremost, I think your your point about the fact that it is funny. And I, I do think there's a power to that where, you know, we're so overwhelmed by our chaotic, crazed, confusing world right now that there's something powerful about being able to laugh at something. You have to have a perspective. You have to have a little distance. So just for me, you know, I always try and make movies for myself as an audience. I really loved being able to laugh at some of this stuff. And just, you know, it's almost like we've had a monkey attacking us for the past five years. And finally, I got to have like 20 feet of distance on the monkey, you know, as opposed to having it just in my face all the time. So first and foremost, I think there's something valuable to that. The second thing is, I don't want to give it away, but we have a very unconventional ending to our movie. And 
I do think after years and years and years of just watching movies that always miraculously have a happy ending and it's just what we expect, there's something powerful about a different kind of ending here. And I've seen it from the audiences that have seen the movie that it's it's almost jarring in a way because you're just used to movies ending a certain way. And so hopefully I can, you know, the, the movie can remind people that our traditional Hollywood happy endings aren't a given, that you actually have to do stuff to get them. Because I think part of us, and this includes myself, we just kind of lean back and assume things work out because that's always the way it happens in the movie. So I hope there's some power to that. And then I hope uh, some of those emotions that you feel, whether it's, you know, laughter, whether it's sadness, whether it's fear. I also think the movie's a good venue to express those emotions and feel them. Because I know personally, I find myself getting a little numb to how crazy this world is. And I really felt that the first time I saw this with a, a test audience, by the way, all vaccinated, all wearing masks and distanced. I really felt a release the first time I saw it with a crowd. So those are my hopes for the movie. I would say those three reactions would be awfully nice if, if even a majority of the audience had that. I, I felt it released. Too. It was like cathartic just to be able to laugh at this and, and see how brilliantly subversive it was and funny and, and whatnot and, and seeing our greatest talents up on screen and full, I mean, unrecognizable, some of them in their in the costumes and the hair and the makeup and the characters. It was really just really great. Really great. I um, mean, how about Chalamet? I feel like Chalamet. Chalamet. Oh, my God. We haven't even talked about oh my him. God. He's brilliant. I love him in this movie. Yeah. I just love how he enters the movie. He doesn't enter in kind of a traditional Hollywood way. No hero entry. No. No. He kind of just sneaks into the movie. Mm -hmm. And then for, you know, it's just my opinion, but for my two cents delivers maybe the most beautiful moment of the movie. Mm -hmm. I I just love Chalamet in this too. Um, But yeah, you're right. All the actors really step up. They really find their place. It's a big ensemble, but it's really just a joy to see them all, all find their groove and find their place in this uh, this crazy, crazy movie. Mm. So at the top of this interview, I read, you know, a lot of your accomplishments, not all of them, I should say. Obviously, you started your professional career, I guess, uh, on SNL. We're both from Denver-ish. I know you moved out when you were young, but I, I grew up in Denver. But what was that first moment when you realized, like, you have to be funny, like comedy, this is it. This is what's speaking to you. This is where your career is going to be. Your energy is going. You know, I had a I had a mom who was really funny. Her and her sisters, just very sharp. Like, I remember as a little kid, she would read us bedtime stories about like Bobby and Susie go shopping and she would like change the stories that the kids were shoplifting and we would laugh so hard. And then I, had a, I have a dad who just loves comedy. He has a great big laugh. So I, I've always enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed pranks. I, I loved when I was a kid doing crank phone calls, uh, you know, throwing snowballs at cars. I've just always kind of enjoyed that world. So 
And from the youngest age, I just love stand up comics. I remember listening to Steve Martin records on vinyl. Yes, that's how old I am. And Monty Python was like a, you know, an awakening moment for me when I saw them back when they were on. Oh, my God, on PBS back in the 70s when they first came on. And Eddie Murphy, too, was another one. Like, where did this guy come from? So my entire childhood, I just always loved to laugh, uh, was getting in trouble in class. And it wasn't until I was in high school when really cable TV had hit. And you started seeing people like David Letterman and obviously SNL. And then I started to see other sketch groups like Kids in the Hall um, that I started realizing, oh, my God, you can do this for a living because back in the 70s, it would have been crazy to consider doing it for a living. There just weren't enough jobs. And with the explosion of cable TV and the increase in the amount of movies, I remember my senior year in high school, freshman year in college, starting to think maybe I could do this. So you land on SNL as a head writer. Will Ferrell, you guys start on the same day. He's a performer. You're a writer. How hard is SNL that day job? Like, I I can't even imagine that kind of pressure with that schedule. Well, the weird thing was I started as a staff writer. You know, I had done Second City. We had started the Upright Citizens Brigade. I'd done IO with Del Close. I got hired out of Second City. I was a staff writer for a year. I mean, that's it. That's the dream job. Like, uh, you know, my age, my generation, that's as good as you get. So I was in my dream job. But at the same time, you're right. Very hard, long weeks, 80-hour weeks, 75-hour weeks, no sleep. You're writing all night long. And I just couldn't have loved it more. It was everything I had ever wanted to do. And the shock for me was after my first year when Lauren and our producer, Steve Higgins, were like, we want to make you head writer. And I I thought it was a joke. I just didn't believe it. In fact, I was so stunned by it. My first instinct was to say no. And I got to give credit to my old manager, Jimmy Miller. Jimmy Miller's like, if you say no, you're never going to get this opportunity again. So I immediately said yes. But the only tricky thing about it was because I loved writing sketches. I loved working with people like Will and Molly Shannon and Anna Gasteyer and all these Tim Meadows, all these talented people. Um, The only tricky thing with it was, and, you know, I was 27 when I was hired, so I was still a headstrong kind of, you know, confident, strident comedy nerd and, and snob was it took me about two years to remember, oh, yeah, this is Lauren Michaels show. Um, <laughs> and, and once I wrote because, you know, before that, I would argue with them. I'd be like, you got to do this. And once I remembered that I had that a duh moment, it was much more enjoyable. My last couple of years were so much fun. Lauren gave me the great opportunity of getting to direct short films for the show. He lets all the writers produce their own sketches. So you get to work with all these different actors. Will and I became a writing team and started writing movies together. And so once I got over the idea that I was the great reformer of SNL and relaxed a little bit and just enjoyed it, I, I really just had the best time. So. I think the last time I saw Lauren, I was like, how did you not throw me out of the building my first two years? And really, I just learned so much at that place, not not only sketch writing and writing and collaborating and producing, but most importantly, directing 
films, like really getting, I, I did like 15, 16 short films and he paid, you know, got a, a budget for me for my own crew and DPs and script supervisors and ADs. And it was just invaluable. I learned so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you, I mean, obviously for you, writing and directing go hand in hand, right? You have to write what you write, you direct. Except with television, I, I've done um, a couple of episodes of television where the scripts were so damn good. Jesse Armstrong's pilot for Succession just knocked me over. And usually I say, oh, I have to write what I direct. And in that case, I was like, screw that. I'm going to, I want to direct this. And the same with the Lakers pilot was just so damn good. Max Borenstein, Rodney Barnes wrote that. I was like, forget that. I'm doing this. And then I directed an episode of Eastbound and Down with Danny McBride and Jody Hill that I just love that show so much. So there, there are times I kind of step out and just go, forget it, I'm doing it no matter what. But you're right, most of the time I like to write what I direct. All right, I wanna talk about Funny or Die, okay? So, and I think it was Pearl, right? So- It was, if, my youngest daughter. Your youngest yeah. daughter. So if, if anybody listening hasn't seen this, please go to YouTube or wherever you go and watch this skit where Will Farrell answers a knock at the door and it's basically someone coming to collect the rent. So now I imagine Pearl has to be pretty grown up. Has she forgiven you? Does she love you for this? Like, where are we in our relationship with Pearl? Because it's absolutely genius. I remember it in real time. And I went back knowing that I was going to interview you. And I watched it. And I was laughing all over again like it was the first time I saw it. It's still funny. It's kind of amazing, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Pearl is 16 years old. She is driving. She is okay. uh, very, very funny. She makes me laugh hard. Uh, she's a very talented singer, piano player, uh, the sweetest person you'll ever meet. She, you know, God bless my wife, because when we made the video, my wife was like, don't you dare make our daughter a child star. And I was like, honey, don't worry about it. It's just a little video with Will. It'll get a few million views. We'll move on. And now, of course, it's I think at 200 million views or whatever. And sure enough, Pearl got offers for movies and but my wife just shut it down Shira Piven she was like nope we're not doing any of it so because of that it let her go back to having a normal childhood and so it's turned out to be a really fun thing that she had that experience and she can look back on it and laugh but she still got to have a normal childhood so <laughs> everything worked out totally hunky-dory with it but um Credit to my wife, because honestly, I, I might have let her do. She literally got offered a Jackie Chan movie, and I just thought it was such a kick. I was like, you know, we're not crazy parents. Let's do it. Uh, and my wife was like, no. So ultimately, she was <laughs> correct. Uh, Pearl is a totally well-adjusted sweetheart of a girl. Um, but man, that was a wild year. That's she for sure. She was like two, not even two, right? She wasn't even two. And I'll never forget, we were at a swimming pool at a hotel and people recognized her and it was like a crowd gathered around her <laughs> and my wife just looked at me like i want to choke you like why did you do this <laughs> it's so funny <laughs> just thinking about it right now makes me laugh it's so good um all right so this season i'm talking about fear right and obviously we have a lot of fear your movie has uh, touches on this my entire view of fear changed obviously once i had children and then in this last year and a half we really see our immortality and the 
something you can't even see can easily wipe you out. So for you, Adam, what's your relationship like with fear these days? So, yeah, I've definitely, like a lot of us, gotten a a lot closer to the notion of fear. I mean, let's just call it like it is. That pandemic was terrifying. I mean, WHO estimates that, what, between 15 and 20 million people have died worldwide. We've had, I lost a really close friend, our music supervisor on the movie, Hal Wilner. The movie's Don't Look Up is dedicated to him. Old friend of mine, 25 years I'd known Hal. We lost some relatives. We've had friends who have lost people. We're also looking at this climate crisis, which is truly, truly terrifying. I always go back to there's a boxing trainer named Teddy Atlas who uh, trained a bunch of guys back in the 80s and 90s into the 2000s. He had one of the greatest lines I ever heard where someone said, would you rather have a boxer who's afraid or a boxer who's not afraid? And he just without hesitation, he said, oh, a boxer who's afraid. He's like, fear is a power. You look at a deer in a field and when it hears a noise, You look at that blazing speed with which it darts away. You can't even see it. It moves so fast. He said, that's what fear can do for you. Fear is a power when it's translated into action. And that's really the trick. And that's what I'm trying to learn. And that's what I've been working on is that the fear we're feeling when it's translated to action can be really powerful. It's when we let the fear pummel us that it can become destructive, that it can turn into stress, that it can turn into avoidance. Um, So that's really how I kind of look at the times that we live in right now. We can do this. We can deal with the climate crisis. We have the science. We are dealing with the pandemic. We created a vaccine in record time. Life is starting to return to normal. And yeah, I know there's people out there that are confused about the science and yelling about having to wear a mask. But for the large part, for most of the planet, we are dealing with it. And so that that's kind of the lesson I'm trying to learn from this time. And I don't always adhere to it. There are days I get just straight up freaked out. Um, but I, I, I think that's where we're headed. I think we're, we're going to take action and we can do this. All right. Well, my last question is, do you have any words of wisdom for all those struggling comedy writers out there? Any advice? Big advice I just always give is write what makes you personally laugh. It's it's not always going to work, but the idea of writing what you think other people are going to like never works. It can maybe get you through a couple meetings or through half a script, but if you just really write for like what makes you laugh hard, good things are going to happen. And the other thing I'll say is a lot of people like to say, oh, it's all about who you know. Not with our internet age now. If you put funny stuff up, believe me, these big conglomerates and streaming companies and studios and networks, they want to make money and they will find you. You see it over and over again. People on Twitter, what was the young lady's name who was doing uh, lip syncing to Donald Trump just on Twitter? Oh my God, Sarah Cooper. Sarah Cooper. Just lip syncing to Donald Trump. Guess what happens? Everyone goes, oh, my God, this is hilarious. They find her. She's got deals. She's got specials like so do what makes you write what makes you laugh. 
Put it out there and they will find you. Thank you, Adam. You're one of my favorite filmmakers. So it is just such a, it's been so fun to sit and talk with you. So I really appreciate your time and congratulations on this movie. And I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you so much, Krista. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for joining me. Don't Look Up will be streaming on Netflix December 24th. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more conversations here at Present Company.